Last week, we considered from God's word how the Lord Jesus depicted the Holy Spirit as wind and water and fire. Actually, we said it was John the Baptist who said of the Lord Jesus that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And by the way, when you hear these, the Holy Spirit and an element coupled with it, we ought to understand that what is being described here are not two different things, but the effect of the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit effectuating fire in your life. Or the Lord Jesus said in another place that if you were to be born again, you had to be born again of water, that's in John chapter three, of water and the Holy Spirit. The effect then of the work of the Holy Spirit upon the person is this washing and cleansing and renewing of water coming over their lives. In that same passage, the Lord Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as wind. And so we identified that wind and water and fire, these expressions of how the Holy Spirit comes and works in our lives and how we engage and meet the Holy Spirit. And what we noticed and we emphasized is that these depictions of the Holy Spirit and His work can be understood as things that are to be experienced. You experience the invigorating, resuscitating wind. You experience the washing and cleansing and life-giving waters. You experience the burning and yet the warming fires. And the Spirit's impact, we said, and this is what we learn, the Spirit's impact as He comes and works in our lives is something to be experience. It's not merely an intellectual exercise. It's not merely gathering information. It's something to be encountered and experienced. And then we saw in John chapter 14 through 16, after Judas had left the upper room in that last supper and the Lord Jesus began to teach his disciples that he promised to them uniquely on that night before he went to his crucifixion, that the Holy Spirit was going to come to them and bring to them the experience of himself, of his presence And of his life, he's come to bring to them his companionship, we said. He came to, the Holy Spirit came to bring to them Jesus' own words and Jesus' own teaching and Jesus' own commands. And as a result of that, experiencing the deep, meaningful, personal companionship with the Lord Jesus experienced and experiencing the refreshing reminder and instruction of his words, they were going to be able to, through the Spirit, bear witness in the message they gave to the world. They weren't going to simply have neat arguments that they put together. They weren't just going to fashion together some orderly account of all of the things that Christ had done and put forward their arguments before individuals and their cause before individuals, but they were to speak out of the witness of their experience. And that was what was going to give them power. And that's how God was going to use them. And that's how the Spirit was going to come to them and It was the speaking out of the experience of Jesus Christ bringing to them through the Holy Spirit the advocacy of his comfort and of his help and of his strength and of his very presence. It was out of that witness that they were to bear this witness to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something I'd like to add to that in consideration. I just want to add this, that this witness that we give through the Holy Spirit of the experience of the personal life and personal fellowship and living, abiding, evident, immediate intimacy with Jesus Christ is the greatest form of assurance that God offers the Christian of their salvation. The Christian's assurance of salvation and of heaven and of the truth of their profession lies in things that are to be experienced. Of course, the first apostles 
had walked with the Lord Jesus and they'd talked with the Lord Jesus. They saw the Lord Jesus as he had died upon the cross and they saw him after he had risen from the dead and they witnessed his ascension from earth to heaven and yet in all those things it wasn't sufficient. God then by his spirit promised to come back and renew to them this intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Although they saw Jesus departing from them, the Lord Jesus told them through the Holy Spirit that he would come to them and that he'd abide in them and he'd be with them. And so even then their witness was not simply recounting past events that they'd seen, but it was a witness of what was being renewed in their lives on a daily basis through this personal abiding relationship with the Lord Jesus. They weren't speaking and just recounting past history. They were speaking out of a present experience of Jesus Christ. That's why you'll see Peter, when he's separated from the Lord Jesus as Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin after this instruction and teaching, and for a moment he's removed from the presence of the Lord Jesus, Peter becomes an absolute coward and draws away and denies the Lord Jesus. But then on the day of Pentecost, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's brought the presence of the Lord Jesus, he stands before the multitudes in Jerusalem and he proclaims with boldness all that Christ had done and what Christ had had accomplished and what Christ had given in the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And he was able to do that because Christ was with him. He was speaking of something that had been done by Christ, but he spoke out of the experience of the presence of Christ within him. And, and this experience of fellowship, of increasing intimate fellowship of the Lord Jesus through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this experience was not only theirs, but it's meant to be our experience as well. And it's this fellowship that is the greatest source of our personal assurance of salvation. 2 Corinthians 13.5 speaks about this. 2 Corinthians 13.5. There Paul writes, Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What's the test? It's this test of this intimate, abiding experience of the life of Jesus Christ living within you. We see this acquisition of a personal experiential relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is, is indeed the highest form of assurance that we may have of our salvation. And this is the ministry that the Holy Spirit brings to us, the experience of Christ and His own presence. And that's what we spoke about last week. And this week we're going to speak about the Holy Spirit's bringing to us the experience of Christ's own power. So that's what we're going to speak about next. Let me begin by adding another way in which the Holy Spirit is depicted. We spoke of the Holy Spirit as wind, and we spoke of Him as water, and we spoke of Him as fire, but in order to speak about this expression of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, not simply bringing us the experience of Christ's presence, but now bringing us the experience of Christ's power, let me... Have you considered that the Holy Spirit also is revealed in Scripture as anointing oil? The Holy Spirit as anointing oil. And I want to take you a bit of a way through a view of this. In the Old Testament, anointing oil was a dramatic expression of the outpouring of God's Spirit upon an individual when they were set apart and empowered or gifted for certain services to the Lord. And so if you study the Old Testament, you'll see, you'll discover that there are three vocations where these vocations were initiated with an outpouring anointing of oil. One of them was the vocation of prophet. 
When a man was to carry out his role as a prophet, speaking for God and giving God's word to individuals and receiving God's message that he was to declare to the people of God, and and that man was authorized now under the work of God to have visions and dreams that God would give him to communicate to the people, and that man was even uniquely given by God power to express God's miraculous power among the community doing works of great power and miracles, that man began his ministry with an, an anointing that was poured upon him and So in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, we see, for example, that Elijah is instructed to anoint Elisha to be a prophet in his place. And what you'll see in the life of Elijah and Elisha is this manifestation in this role of the anointing of power of God upon them, the power to speak God's word to people, the power to receive God's direction and God's word to themselves and to proclaim that forward to others and by God's grace and by God's power, the the power to manifest the miraculous hand of God in the presence of the people working miracles as well. The priest of God were also were also anointed with oil. Begin the role in the ministry among the people of Israel, the priests were anointed, they were set it apart and gifted and instructed in such a way through that anointing oil to be representatives for the people to God and representatives of God to the people in the worship and service that God gave in the temple. In Exodus 40, we read the account of Aaron and his sons who are set apart for this important work, and there are a number of things that are done upon them. They're bathed, and then they have the blood of the sacrifice sprinkled upon them, but then you'll see after they're bathed and the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled upon them to set them apart, they have oil that's placed upon them and oil that's poured over them, anointing them for the work they're to do. Prophets, priests, the others are kings. When the kings of Israel began their ministry, they had to be empowered by God to rightly govern God's people. They needed an anointing that would come upon them for the character and the qualities that were needed in a king. They needed it in order that they might carry forward by God's power the justice and the righteousness and the wisdom that was called upon to lead the people. They weren't to amass power to themselves. They weren't to amass slaves to themselves. They were not to amass wives to themselves. They were to live in the nation as the first among the people in holy obedience to God's laws. And for this They needed to be anointed. So, for example, when Saul first began his reign as king in Israel, as the first king of Israel, he was anointed by Samuel. When Saul failed to live up to that anointing, David was anointed. And you'll read about that in in 1 Samuel chapter 16. God instructs Samuel, the prophet, to go to the house of Jesse. He's told there that in the house of Jesse, he'll discover the one who's to take the place of Saul as king over Israel. When he arrives there, Jesse brings before Samuel all of his older sons because David is the youngest. And God doesn't confirm to Samuel that that any one of those sons is the one that's to be the one to rule as king over Israel. He asks if there's any others, and it's revealed to them that there's one others. There's one other child, the youngest, And Samuel sins for him. And so in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read this. So he sent and brought him in. Now, speaking of David, he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Not the other brothers, but this one is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, poured it out over his head. In the midst of his brothers... And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. There you see the oil of the Spirit is poured out upon the prophet. 
is poured out upon the priest. It's poured out upon the king. They cannot properly fulfill their duties without this divine power and outpouring of the Spirit upon their lives. Now, it's interesting. When we, we sing and give praise to the Lord Jesus, we have learned to sing and give praises to the Lord Jesus as the one who epitomizes and fulfills these offices perfectly as the Messiah. We've learned from John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, to sing the words of this other song he wrote. Listen to the words. O Jesus, shepherd, guardian, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my life, my Lord, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Another hymnist, a Baptist hymnist named Samuel Medley wrote this. I know that my Redeemer lives, what comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives, he lives. Who once was dead, he lives, my ever-living head. He lives, my kind, wise, heavenly friend. He lives and loves me to the end. He lives, and while he lives, I'll sing. He lives. My prophet, priest, and king. We've learned to recognize that the Lord Jesus as Messiah is the one who fulfills the fullness of that reality of prophet and priest and king. And we understand that for the nation of Israel, as they were looking for the coming of the Messiah, they saw something of the Messiah in the roles that were being played before them as the prophet spoke the word of God to them and gave them the commandments of God as the priest carried out his roles of mediating for God between them and God as the king ruled and gave them the governance of God and Trite was supposed to live out the holy character of God before them and they were looking for the Messiah through these other individuals and these offices. And and by the way, do you know what the word Messiah means? It means one who's anointed with oil. One who's anointed with oil. Oil poured out upon him. When the Lord Jesus came and began his earthly ministry, he was baptized by John. And after he came out of the waters, we're told that the Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove. It was an anointing of the Holy Spirit upon his life. And God the Father spoke out of the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Interesting, when a king in Judah was anointed for his kingship, he was at that moment declared to be God's son, God's regent in that place to represent God before the people. And when the Lord Jesus is baptized and the Spirit pours out upon him, he's anointed and then the king is declared to be God's son. Now Jesus is baptized by John and God the Father himself speaks out, this is my beloved, this is the one in whom I'm well pleased. Shortly after that, we find the Lord Jesus in Nazareth, his first moment in which we find him publicly addressing people after this anointing. And there in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, he reads to him Isaiah 61. He tells the people that the scripture that he's reading has been fulfilled in himself. And you can find the words in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And take your Bibles there, and, and let's read what the Lord Jesus, what he read that he declares was fulfilled in their sights through him. He read to them, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovery of the sight of to the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In this passage that we just read here, the Holy Spirit is both anointer and anointing. The Spirit of the Lord is poured out upon me, the Lord Jesus says, because he has anointed me. The Spirit anoints with himself and pours himself out upon the Lord Jesus. He is the one who gives the Lord Jesus authority under that anointing to fulfill to the fullest the roles of prophet and priest and king. The Lord Jesus stands before the people now to speak clearly and plainly the words of God with power. The Lord Jesus comes before the people 
to stand between them and God, to represent them to God and, and God to them. The Lord Jesus comes before them to emulate the full character of righteousness and justice required in the king. He sets before them the standard uh, conduct of holy surrender to God's purposes and wills perfectly in every way. And in his submission to these things, as Messiah, he gains the right to rule as king over all the earth. And he rules in the hearts of those now who bow before him and yield their life to him. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus began his ministry under the anointing of the Spirit. And it was after the Spirit anointed him that he powerfully began to carry out public expressions of his messianic mission and fulfill them. It was after the anointing waters of the Jordan River that the Lord Jesus began to teach with tremendous authority. It was after the anointing that he experienced at the Jordan that he began to work great miracles before the people. It's after this that he began to powerfully cast out demons. And all of this was done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus' disciples began to understand this. In fact, when Peter explains the ministry of the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to a Gentile named Cornelius and he begins to explain and tell the story of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Here's how Peter in Acts 10 verse 38 describes the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He says this. He speaks to Cornelius of how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. There's the idea. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit has anointed me for this work and this ministry. And we understand that Jesus Christ is God the Son. We clearly recognize the triune God being before us in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And yet we also understand that when the Lord Jesus came to earth, he came as a man and he set aside his prerogative to operate independently carrying out his divine power instead he chose as a man to work through the power that was given to him by the father through the holy spirit the holy spirit anointed him the holy spirit empowered him the holy spirit enabled him to carry out all his deeds and his miracles and to render all of his authoritative teaching and to cast out demons go to acts chapter one let me read to you verses one and two here, Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus and explaining to him what he is, he's beginning the book of Acts and for a moment he reviews everything that he's shared with this same individual in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke. And he writes this, the former account I made, O Theophilus, speaking of what we call the gospel of Luke, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. I love the phrase there, all that Jesus began because he hasn't stopped doing and teaching. He's still doing it right now. All that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commands to the apostles whom he chose. So That's a phrase I want you to look at. After he through the Holy Spirit had given commands to the apostles whom he chose. What you see there is that that Luke is saying that the teaching and the instruction that the Lord Jesus had given to his disciples all along the way, all the way to the moment of his ascension, was carried out with authority by means of the power that had been given to him by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one that was conducting this ministry, even this disciple-making ministry through him. Jesus carried out his ministry on earth through the poured out anointing of the Spirit upon him, bringing to him God's power. 
Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So it's a long ways to make just one point, but it's simply this, but you can't deny it. The Holy Spirit is anointing oil. He gives us the experience of power, just like he gives the experience of presence. He gave that power to the Lord Jesus himself. Here's the next thing I want you to consider just briefly. I want you to consider the commission that Christ gave to his disciples. I want you to keep in mind that after Christ rose from the dead and before he ascended, he gave to his disciples a mission to go into all the earth and proclaim the gospel and to give witness of their experience of Christ Jesus and to teach them of all that Christ had commanded them. And this is still the duty of we Christians today. And what we should see is, in a sense, what the Lord Jesus was handing off to them and what he's handed off to us are these same roles that he has perfectly fulfilled as Messiah. He's saying, in a sense, we have a prophetic role in the world in which we live. We are to be the ones who are foretelling the truths of God, and we're to be living out God's truth and God's will and God's way before men, and we're to be proclaiming it as well in the message of the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And, and we are ones who are to live as intercessors on our earth. We are to carry out a priestly ministry in which we intercede for men, and, and we represent them before God, and we, in our communion with Jesus Christ, represent God before them. And we also have been called to be ambassadors, given a kingly authority to represent the reign and rule of our king upon the earth as we submit to his will and his way in our lives. And we declare the coming king. Peter, again, recognized this role that we play. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2.9, Peter says of ourselves, of the believers, that we are a royal priesthood. We have this kingly role, we have this priestly role, we have this prophetic role. He says, we are a royal priesthood in order that we may proclaim the praises of him who's called us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. All of these are roles that God has given to us, and may I just say, none of these roles can we fulfill, none of them, without the anointing, without the anointing. We need it. We desperately need it. Those first disciples were not going to be able to carry the work of the Messiah, giving witness of his prophetic and priestly and kingly fulfillment for the world as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the Christ, but through the Holy Spirit. So having given them the assignment to make disciples and to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel, the Lord Jesus then told them to wait until they were anointed with power from the Holy Spirit. Let's read a couple passages. These are the passages that we probably should have had as our lead passages, but I want to save them till now, until we, in a sense, understood them within their context. So Luke 24, 46 through 49. Let's read that together, and then we'll go over to Acts chapter 1. Luke 24, verses 46 through 49. Then he said, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. This is what the Lord Jesus was teaching them. All these things were necessary. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued, or there's an outpouring of power from on high. Power from on high. Now go to Acts chapter 1. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And being assembled together with them, Jesus, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember in 1 Samuel when we read about David, And his anointing, we read that from that time forward, David went forth in the power and the spirit of the Lord. And these disciples needed that same spirit upon them. They needed that same anointing if they were to carry out that work. Individuals who want to go into ministry nowadays, oftentimes, well, I guess you actually saw the other day that you can just go online and you can get an ordination paper online. You can become ordained online, but... The traditional route was that you, after college, you went off to seminary and worked on a three-year degree at least. That's what I did. During that time, you, you took Hebrew and you took Greek and you studied all the different theological positions and you walked your way through all the phylum of different theological thought. You studied angiology and anthropology and uh, pneumatology and ecclesiology, all the ologies of our proper theology, working your way through the Bible and You had debates and discussions with the other students and you interacted with the professors and they gave you a copious amount of reading that would just literally, you would choke on every single night as you were reading through all that material. And after three years, they gave you a diploma and you were off sending out your resume and you found a church to pastor in. And it was a decent education, but it was poor in comparison to the education that those first disciples got. Those first disciples spent three or four years walking with the Lord Jesus, learning from the Master hearing his instruction, receiving his take and his understanding and direction on exactly what the Bible was teaching and the scriptures were teaching, opening up their minds. We're told that after he rose again, he opened their minds as well. There was an intensive that took place after he rose again in which he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and there he showed them that he was the fulfillment of everything that was proclaimed in the scriptures. But not only did they have this tremendous kind of teaching that was filling their minds with wonderful information But they were also able to see and learn of Jesus by watching him and studying him and seeing how his character interacted with other men. They saw the pastoral ministry in action because they watched him as he came near to people and how he engaged people and he spoke to people and how he questioned people and how he found a way to speak to them immediately to the very deep needs of their life. They watched, what an education, what an education. Makes any kind of seminary education I had pair in comparison. Nobody, in a sense, was better educated and better prepared to carry on the ministry of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth than those 12 apostles or those original apostles. And yet, it wasn't enough. Jesus told them it would not satisfy for the work that he gave them to do. They would have to wait until they were anointed with power from the Holy Spirit to carry out their work. If it's true for them, how can we accomplish the great things God calls us to do without having that anointing ourselves and God moving upon us in the same way? Here's kind of where we are at in our season and our time. Education kind of went like this. Most of you were educated around the same time that I was educated. We grew up kind of at the end of the ripening of the modern era. We grew up when we were moving into success. The world wars were behind us. 
Actually, the excursions in Korea and Vietnam were behind us as well. There were flare-ups around the world periodically, but that was from less progressed countries than ourselves. We were past the civil rights movement. We had moved forward. We heard of the terrible things in our history, but we also learned that we had learned and risen past those things, and we had discovered the way to go forward and move forward, and so there was in our minds, and this was inculcated us in our schools even, this expectation that we were the generation of the enlightenment of what had taken place through the years and of the modern era, and we had before us nothing but conquest. It was morning in America, and we were to move forward with all that we had learned and all that we had discovered, and this same conviction came upon us in ministry as well. We thought that we had discovered the tools and we begun to understand the social structures and the ways in which people operate and we had figured out the mechanisms you might say and the strategies to fulfill the role in the church of doing the best at communicating gospel truths. The emphasis when I was in ministry was in being a good communicator and learning the rules of proper communication. And we'd figured them out. And we'd also figured out how it was that we could help the church grow and expand in its social impact. And we began to implement all of those rules and all those tools. And quite effectively, I might add, it was only a decade ago, you know, that the evangelical church had felt as though they had hit the zenith. And we were the difference makers in the nation. In fact, it was just less than 10 years ago that They took a poll and the vast majority, the great majority of people in America said that they were evangelical Christians. We triumphed through all these processes and all these. We would go to seminars and we'd learn church growth models and we'd learn all the strategies and how to grow and how to develop and how to make polished and good disciples and raise up Christians and get our message out there more effectively. And we followed all those things. Now, listen, when we would go to the seminars there was always a little bit of an apology at the very beginning of it and at the end of it. You know, We can't do any of this without the work of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. We are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to produce anything lasting, and we all said, amen. And then they began to lay down all the different strategies that we could follow to be effective, and we started taking our notes and following our notes and doing all those things. And there was even a little bit of a story we told against ourselves. We knew that we had developed all of these structures and these programs, and that to some extent we knew that there was an Achilles heel in it. There was going to be a failure in it, and there was a common anecdotal story that was told regularly when I was going in the ministry. It was a story of a Chinese Christian who had come to North America to go and view the church in North America and see all that they had done. He was taken to all the churches with our bowling alleys and our great big fellowship halls and all of our ministries extended out from them. And he went all over America and when it was done, he was asked what was his most significant impression from all that he had seen. And we told this story on ourselves because his answer was, I'm amazed at how much the church in North America can do without the Holy Spirit. We say, see, we've got to be careful about these things. But then we went on chasing our structures because we knew so much and we had learned so much. And now we've come to the end of the modern age and we've flipped over into postmodernity. And now order and structure and logic and reason and program and, and all those things are being put aside for insanity. No logic whatsoever. In fact, today, this morning, I heard some advertisement which said, we are against logic. We are against reason. It was an advertisement for something someone was selling, but someone's figured out that's the new pitch. No logic, no reason, just whatever you feel, whatever you desire, and all those structures are being pulled down, and we're seeing it around us. And It's like being in a whirlpool of just 
despair. It's hard to figure out. It's just washing away and the, sweeping through the church as well. And all those systems and all those strategies, which we're still trying to apply, are having less and less impact on where our world is going. What is God doing in all these things? What is God doing? God is coming alongside and saying, see, I told you. The anecdote was true. You can do nothing except to the anointing of my Holy Spirit. All those facades you built up, all those structures, all those things that you raised up, wherever you raise it up in your own ingenuity, in your own programs, in your own planning, it's just being swept away. It's just being swept away. This will not come to an end. There will be no turning. There will be no holding back of the tide but by my spirit. God said it years ago when he spoke to the prophet Zechariah. He said, not by might nor by power, not by your might, not by your ingenuity, not by your ideas, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. None of these things will be dealt with ultimately unless there's an outpouring of the anointing of his spirit upon ourselves and upon the church. So you say, Joel, but I'm just a single member of the church. I'm just someone who's trying to keep his head above the water and try to have some impact in the strange days in which we live. I just want to tell you that I think I could prove to you very carefully that you too have been given by God the roles of a prophetic role and a priestly role and a kingly responsibility that rest upon you. And that for those roles, you too will need this anointing, this experience of the Spirit of God poured out upon you in power. The church needs it. The church needs it as never before. But you might say, you know, I'm just a sinner who's found forgiveness and salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And isn't that enough? Can I just kind of rest in the fact that I've been redeemed and I've been forgiven and cleansed and I'm going to heaven and isn't that all God wants for me and well he's cleansed you and he has washed you and he has forgiven you but he's left you here for a purpose may surprise you but being born again and having born again life is not all he wanted for you in that life he wanted you to live it out to the impact of his name and the glory of his gospel throughout the ends of the earth and for that you still need the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon your life Possibly the lowest person in Jewish civilization or in the Jewish community was a leper. When a person got leprosy, that person was banished from and pushed out from worship in Israel. And Yet, wonderfully, God provided healings for these lepers. And there was a way for a person who had been a leper to demonstrate that he had been healed and come back into fellowship and worship. And maybe you and I may feel like that is a, that's an image of our lives. We were just lepers, driven out from the community of faith, unable to worship God. And what we found in salvation was just this cleansing from God and we are brought into fellowship with him and that's our lives, period. But in Leviticus chapter 14, we have a description of what was to take place for the leper who had been healed. The leper was to go back to the priest and the priest was to conduct about an eight-day ceremony over that leper to demonstrate that he was living under that healing power, that healing work of God. And And initially it began on the first day with a series of sacrifices that were made on his behalf in which he was sprinkled with blood. And then he was bathed and he was washed. And then after all that, on the eighth day, another sacrifice was made, a sin offering was made for him and an atonement offering was made for him. And it again demonstrated that all that he had received was under the blood of the sacrifice. And, And then the blood of the sacrifice on that eighth day was taken and the blood was applied to his ear. And it was to demonstrate on his right ear, to demonstrate that the sins that had come upon him by the influences externally to him, what he had heard and what he had received into his life, they'd all been cleansed away. And then the blood was applied to his right thumb to demonstrate that the sin that he had committed with his own hands 
He'd let out with his own hands, had been washed and cleansed away. And then the blood was put upon his right toe to show that the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed would wash and cleanse him from the waywardness of his life. And he was washed and cleansed from that as well. And then you say, all right, now he can go into the community and can worship in the community. Now the leper is under the blood and that's where I am. Isn't that enough? But that's not all that happened. After the blood was applied, then he was anointed. And the anointing oil was put upon his ear so that now he might live his life hearing only and listening to the word and messages of God so that he might speak truly from the mouth of God. And then the oil was placed upon his thumb so that his hands might be used by God to be instruments of his righteousness in the world in which he lived. And then the oil was poured upon his big toe, his right big toe, so that he might be an example of one walking in the ways of holiness before the nation. He had a life to live. He had a message and ministry to bear out before the people. And then the rest of the oil was poured out over his head. He was to live under the overflow of the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not enough to say, I've received Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. That's all I need. I'm going to heaven. It's not enough for our world. It's not enough for our community. It won't repeal the decay of our age. It won't fulfill our mission. We need the outpoured anointing of the Spirit of God upon ourselves. Most assuredly as the disciples needed it, we need it. And we should wait and say, oh God, God pour out upon me that Spirit. God using me that way. God, I thank you for the blood of your cleansing and the forgiveness that I received, but now oil. Pour out the oil, the power of your spirit upon my life. Let my life be so saturated with the power of your spirit that I might minister your spirit to those who come in contact with me. I'm so glad that I'm a former leper who's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. But now I want to live under the anointing of that Holy Spirit. I want to know his power in my life. We are studying what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit. As I've been working on these messages on the Holy Spirit, I recognize that we're going to have to move out a little bit further. We're going to have to show, and we'll have to do this the next time I speak to you, the impact of that anointing on the disciples. Something changed in their life that they didn't manifest or present prior to that moment in time. The impact of that life, the, the demonstration of that oil that was upon them and how God gave it to them. But for now, for now, just let the Lord, by His Spirit, cultivate within us this sense of the experience or the evidence of God's work in our life. God, I want my life to evidence your presence. Jesus, I want to know the experience of your presence. That's what we learned last week. I want to live in the sharp, clear understanding that I am in fellowship with you and I'm enjoying you. And Lord Jesus, I recognize the need. My family needs this. My community needs this. Oh God, I want to know the experience as well of your anointed power on my life. I recognize it. That should be enough for now. We'll move forward from there and consider it more, but now we wait. We wait for these things. We ask God for these things. And we don't just assume them, by the way. And, and by the way, well, I won't go into this. Lord, I, I prayed and received Jesus Christ. Didn't I get the Spirit then? 
The Lord Jesus, on the first day after, after he had risen from the dead, on that first night, came before his disciples and he breathed upon them and said, Receive. It's not receive in the future, it's in that moment. Receive the Holy Spirit. There was something of the Spirit that he poured out upon them and he gave them on the day of his resurrection. Forty days later, before he ascended, he told them, Now wait until I anoint you and I pour out upon you the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ten days after that, they realized it. And not only that, read them. They had to realize that outpouring over and over again in their lives. They still needed fresh outpourings of the Spirit of God, giving them the experience of His power. It won't be enough that we're well-educated. It won't be enough that we've gone to multiple Bible studies so that in my lifetime I've studied the book of Ephesians like 10 or 12 times. And it won't be enough. We'll need for our day and age more than just strategies and programs. We'll need this power. Let's be convinced of that. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, you give us, faithfully give us exercises that you call us to, exercises to renew ourselves in again and again. They're exercises that mark things that have been done in the past, history that we have with you, this table before us. Marks. It marks the sacrifice that you made for our sins, the gift of yourself given for us. But you don't simply call us to it to remember something in the past. You bring us to these points to teach us what it is you want to renew in us day by day. Each day you want to be to us the food that we eat. Each day you open up to us the sweet wine of your cleansing and forgiveness and your very life as drink that is our life. Enabling us, equipping us, empowering us, bringing yourself to us. You have done great things for us because you want to do great and powerful things through us. And you've provided all that is needed by giving us your Holy Spirit. We declare in this hour, we need these things. Our world needs these things. We thank you for the history that goes in the past of great moments of the outpouring of your spirit upon the church. We can't orchestrate that. But as individuals, we can come before you and say, God, God, just see me. God, grant me the outpouring of your spirit and use me. That we can pray and that we do pray before this table in Jesus' name.